Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair here on WORTFM, Madison, Wisconsin. My name is Norman Stockwell and I'm your guest host today and uh, very pleased to have with us uh, from the Eastern uh part of the United States, Chuck Collins. Uh, and we'll, as we get into the conversation today about Chuck's brand new novel, Alter to an Erupting Sun, you'll recognize why we started the program with uh, Charlie King's 1977 song, Acres of Clams. Chuck, it's great to have you with us. Chuck Collins is a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., where he directs the program on inequality and the common good and runs the inequality.org website and uh, author of numerous books. In fact, I had you on the air here on WRT with what I think was your first book, uh, Robin Hood Was Right, uh, about 23 years ago. And then uh, not too long ago, a couple of years ago now, you and I did an interview about your more recent book, The Wealth Hoarders, which actually ended up on C-SPAN's uh, book TV. Uh, right now, Chuck Collins has a brand new book, and it's his first novel. It's called Alter to an Erupting Sun, and he's going to be here in Madison, Wisconsin on Wednesday August 9th, next Wednesday at 6 p.m. at Aruma One's Own Bookstore, 2717 Atwood Avenue in Madison. Roomofonesown.com uh, is the website for more information. Chuck Collins, welcome to WRT. Hey, thank you, Norman, for having me. And I love WORT, so great to be back in Madison. Right. I should say welcome back home since you were actually born in Madison. And uh, for, for listeners that don't know your history, you're actually uh, of the family that created Oscar Mayer. Uh, so that's that's uh, how you came to have been born here in Madison. That's right. My dad was working at the plant uh, when I was born and he was like, "Uh oh, I better uh, I got to get my life together. So, yeah, I was born in Madison. And uh, yeah, my great grandfather is the meatpacker by that name. So it's always great to come back to Madison. Well, let's talk about this brand new book, Alter to an Erupting Sun. It's a novel, and it's your first novel. And I guess the, the question I want to start off with is uh, why a novel? You've written uh, a number of books, uh, half a dozen at least, on uh, issues of economic inequality. And now suddenly you've, you've turned your hand to a work of fiction. Yeah, um, I've been trying to be a better storyteller over the years. Everybody says, you know, don't don't just talk about data. Talk about the stories, the narratives. And I, I don't know about you, Norman, but I have been inspired by fiction. Uh, you know, when I need to sort of have a future vision, I've looked to Ursula Le Guin or, or you know, others, uh, Octavia Butler, some of the future thinkers who aren't just writing about kind of the, the apocalypse or zombie fiction, but are really trying to help us ha imagine what the future may hold. And so, uh, yeah, I wanted to be part of that exercise and, and write a book that lifted up both social movements and sort of a possible scenario for the next decade. And this book was inspired in some ways by Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Ministry of the Future, which has gotten a lot of uh, press recently as we uh, move into this uh, period of uh, increasing awareness about the climate crisis that's going on around us. Let, let's talk about the title of the book itself, Alter to an Erupting Sun. Uh, the idea of alters uh, appears regularly throughout the book. Talk, talk about that for a moment. Yeah. Um the uh, the main character of the in the book, a, a, a fictional woman, Ray Kelleher, is a altar builder. She she learns from sort of the Mexican Day of the Dead tradition, but also connects to her own sort of Irish sound tradition and learns about 
the importance of building altars for remembrance as a way to stay connected to ancestors, to draw strength in troubled times. So she is an altar builder. And for me, this book is an altar. It is a celebration of people who've come before and social movements and uh, invites invites the reader to say, well, who is on your altar? Um, yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting because for me, uh, this book is so much of that because all of the people that appear in this book are people that uh, that I have known and crossed paths with over the years. People like uh, Wally and Juanita Nelson, people like Brian Wilson, who of course has been here on WRT before, Jim Wallace, who I also interviewed uh, for WRT, Karen Brandau. You know, so it's great to see all of those people and all of those stories and movements, the Pledge of Resistance, Witness for Peace, uh, working in Nicaragua and in El Salvador. Those are all parts of this shared history that, that so many of us have. And yet you're also introducing a new generation to these elders of the movement in this book. Well, you definitely catch my, my uh, intention here, which is, uh, a little bit of historical fiction uh, that that is telling some of the history of these movements and, and individuals within them, some of whom are still alive, but uh, some have passed to the other side. And I hope that uh, younger readers will will be interested in this book and interested in the history that uh, that's portrayed here. Just like any good historic fiction, you kind of get excited about learning more about a place or, or a piece of history. Let's introduce the character of Ray, uh, who is, uh, I guess we'll say the book, the book starts and ends with the character of Ray, and, and then it, it kind of jumps back and forth in time, and maybe we'll talk about that technique in a minute. But let's introduce the character of Ray, and uh, maybe if you could read a little bit, Chuck, from, from, from the book itself. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's not a spoiler alert to to kind of set the context, which is the book begins. Ray Kelleher is a lifelong nonviolent activist shaped by movements like the anti nuclear power movement, uh, where the Acres of Clam song you played came from. Uh, she is has elders like Wally and Juanita Nelson, who are civil rights leaders, black anti uh, tax activists, you know, tax war tax resistors. So she is rooted in that, but at the end of her life, she begins to look at the role of the fossil fuel industry. She learns that she has a terminal illness, that she doesn't have long to live. And so in a sort of shocking last act, she engages in a, she takes her own life and the life of the CEO of a fossil fuel company who she believes is complicit in delaying our society's response to climate change. So that's kind of the, the provocative big beginning. Uh, that's just the first four pages. But then the book really says, well, what impact did this have? And why did she do this? What, what, what led someone who had that, those elders and that belief system to do what she did? So let me just introduce you to Ray, who is a lively life of the party kind of character. Uh, this is through the eyes of her, uh, the person she eventually marries named Reggie. Uh, who who describes her kind of as uh, the, the 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 weaver of social movements and people. She's the person who remembers your birthday. She observes all kinds of political anniversaries. Um, <clears throat> so Reggie says early in the book, but it's it's actually seven years after Ray has has done her act. Um, what can Reggie say today about Ray that he hasn't already said before? And people are going to be gathering. Uh, to to um, honor her birthday. Each year that goes by validates everything she predicted. She was prescient, a channeler, a manifester. She could see things that other people couldn't see. She said he had that power too if he wanted to tap into it. Reggie was going to lose her either way, either to the cancer that metastasized throughout her body or her decision to go out with a violent bang. She could have ended her life here at Hidden River Farm, surrounded by loved ones. People could have sung songs to her as she had done with so many others who had passed before her. Reggie thinks about how every March, 
Ray enlisted him to join the salamander crossing teams that gathered along the roadways after the first warm spring rain. Wearing reflective vests and holding flashlights, they made sure that the frogs and salamanders eager to attend wild spawning orgies in the vernal pools made it across the road alive. Salamander protection required staying up to 11 p.m., several hours past Quaker midnight in Reggie's book. But nothing could deflate Ray more than holding a squished wood frog in her hand, knowing she could have saved a life. So he happily joined the crossing guards. Save a life, take a life. Ray's reverence for life was consistent until her final minutes. And that is Chuck Collins, our guest today on the program and author of the brand new novel, Alter to an Erupting Sun. Chuck Collins will be here in Madison on Wednesday, August 9th at 6 p.m. at a room of one's own bookstore, which is 2017 Atwood Avenue in their new location or new in the last year or so. Um, and uh, roomofonesown.com on the web for more information about that event and about store. Chuck, let's talk a little bit about your influences. What what went into um, the idea of this book, the style of the book? Because one of the things I think that's interesting about the style is you do this kind of back and forth. You start out um, on Easter Sunday, 2023, which is yesterday basically and then you jump forward uh seven years and then you go back all the way to 1977 and that acres of clams uh movement to stop the seabrook uh nuclear power plant and then move forward through 50 years of uh of history which by the way there's a great quote in the book where you, uh, I think it was Ray who says, uh, the last uh, 50 years will be nothing like the next 30 years. And uh, and that sort of, I think is, is very reflective of the message of this book. But talk about your influences and how you came to write this and what effect the pandemic had on your, on your process of writing this book. Well, you know, I, I you mentioned uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry for the Future, which is a a powerful book in that it sort of imagines the next 40 years and, and kind of humanity bump a bumpy road, a disrupted future, but humanity starts to turn the corner toward uh, living in harmony with the earth. And I was intrigued by that in part because, but, but also made my timeline considerably shorter. So since we're living in the critical decade, we don't have 40 years uh, as, as you just said, Ray, Ray's sort of, repeats that quote, you know, we're the first generation to fully understand the impact of uh, dumping carbon and methane into the atmosphere and disrupting our climate. Uh, but we're also the last generation to really be able to change the trajectory. And so that's there, that was very much on my mind. So there's a little bit of future fiction here. Uh, imagining seven years after Ray undertakes her sort of shocking, provocative action, what's the blowback? What were the negative consequences of what she did? But also what sort of openings emerged and how did humanity in the short term, how did communities, and I, I really go into detail depicting how one community sort of organizes and prepares itself for climate disruption drawing on things that I see happening around right now and imagining how that might play out. But then there's the part which is, so why did Ray do this? And that's the formation story, kind of in the classic tradition of what were the forces that formed this fictional Ray Kelleher, some of which are forces that I shared. You know, you can only write what you know. Um, but some were things that I did a little more research on and learned about in terms of the movements that shaped Ray Kelleher. Um, so, though you know, <laughs> being a kind of organizer, campaigner in my day job, I, I have to admit, I sort of had a, a little bit of an agenda here, which was I really wanted to talk about the importance of social movements in this moment, and I just didn't see a lot of fiction that did that well, uh, honored those kind of lifelong activists uh, that many of your listeners are. 
and uh, kind of wanting people to be able to see themselves in fiction. Um, so those were all some of the inspirations that, that got me out of my usual lane into writing fiction. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I thought was very interesting in your portrayal of the world seven years from now, that is, uh, and it takes place around a, a memorial ceremony for for Ray, um, but the idea that the country is kind of more and more divided, that there are some states that have become, you know, that have kind of doubled down on their allegiance to the fossil fuel industry, and then there are places like Vermont, where um, not only have the people there adopted this lifestyle that kind of builds a new, more sustainable future, but also people from other parts of the country are coming there to join that community as a, as a refuge. So talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, I imagine in the future, aside from some good things happening in terms of people, is, is a polarization of the states. So what we call the red states become more red, they become more restrictive in terms of voting and abortion and criminalizing dissent. And then there are states, who knows where Wisconsin will fall, right? But that uh, make voting easier, that uh, 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 create social supports for people who are not wealthy, uh, who are better prepared for a disrupted future. And I actually think that's probably what's going to happen. We're going to start to see this weakened central government basically been unable to solve the big problems and the states will splinter along those lines. So yeah, that was that's definitely kind of part of how the future may unfold. One, what, there's one one vision of how it may unfold, um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I don't think that's an ideal thing to lose a healthy, functioning national government, but that people are kind of stepping into that gap. And yeah, people there are both climate refugees and political refugees that are going to be coming maybe to the Great Lakes, maybe to the Northeast, who are not only fleeing, uh, you know, 120 degree summers, but are also fleeing repressive state level uh, government. And I, I don't think that's, I think it's already happening to some extent. Where I live, people are f coming from Texas who are saying, I can't live in Texas because of the politics and because of the changing climate and the fact that no one's going to do anything about it. Yeah, and the book is tremendously current in that, you know, you mentioned the uh, the Supreme Court decision that uh, uh, overthrew the Roe versus Wade decision. You mentioned the things that are happening around uh, the country and around the world. There was a great quote in here from uh, uh, another fiction writer, William Gibson, uh, that, that uh, Ray wrote in her personal journal. The future is here. It's just not widely distributed yet. And it really reflects how this climate crisis is affecting people. The climate crisis and the political crisis both are affecting people in a very differential way that some populations are much more um, impacted much more quickly. And of course, a lot of those populations are populations of the global south. We're speaking with Chuck Collins. The book, again, Alter to an Erupting Sun. It's brand new, just out. Uh, the publisher is Green Writers Press, and Chuck Collins will be here in Madison Wednesday, August 9th at 6 p.m. at a room of one's own bookstore, 2017 Atwood Avenue. If you want to uh, meet him, uh, hear what he has to say more about the book, get a, get a signed copy, uh, that's, uh, that's a place that you can do that. In the meantime, we're also taking your calls at 608-256-2001 if you'd like to join our conversation here on A Public Affair. My name is Norman Stockwell, sitting in as a guest host today. And again, uh, my guest of the program is uh, is Chuck Collins. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the climate moment that we are in. This... Um, this past month, July, has been called by Scientific American as the hottest month in 120,000 years. Not just the hottest month in recorded history, but the hottest month in um, the history of 
the planet for the past 120,000 years, and that's based on, uh, you know, uh, archaeological evidence and geological evidence and so on. How are people reacting to this moment, both in good ways and bad ways? And, and how much does that uh, dovetail with the predictions in your book? Well, I think we're, we're, we're living through the future. <laughs> the, more and more communities are, are uh, realizing that the climate disruption is happening now. You know, I'm talking to you from the brave little state of Vermont where we've just been hammered with uh, floods and deluges of rain the last six weeks. Uh, we've also gotten forest fire smoke from Quebec and other regions obviously are facing drought, fire, and other disruption. As I think part of it is people are saying, oh, how do we live with this impossible news that we have altered our climate and that it is gonna have meaning really, really rocky consequences potentially fatal consequences for some people. How do we face this future? And, you know, some people are go to a place of um, denial or, oh, it's a hoax. And that's, but, but for people who are sort of looking at the science and sort of paying attention to the signs of the times, this is a really disturbing time. And how do we face that together? Um, and so, yeah, part of, part of the book is about, well, how does, one community uh, come together and face this disrupted future? How do we create a more resilient mutual aid culture? How do we welcome those refugees that welcome the strangers who are coming uh, or those who have to flee their homes? Um, how do we just adapt? Um, and how do we address the larger systemic issue of, you know, where did these fossil fuel executives, what, what Ray Kelleher calls the carbon barons, what role have they played in this? Uh, at one point he says, I don't want to talk about climate grief, you know, the sadness. I'm still angry, you know, and I think that some people probably feel both those things, a sense of loss and a sense of powerlessness and anger. Uh, so those are all, all understandable emotions given, given the, the moment that we're in. One of the things your your character uh, Ray is a is a deep studier. She will uh, delve into a topic and read books and watch videos and and research the topic. And one of the things she looks at early on is how the uh, climate industry, or the fossil fuel industry, I should say, uh, was aware of the threats of their industry to the climate. Uh, as far back as the late 1970s, and yet concealed that from the public and, in fact, created a whole um, uh, industry of disinformation around the threats to the climate. Yeah, that's one of the things that really informs Ray at the end of her life the last couple of years is she, she's reading this uh, information that that progressive journalists have been putting out. What's the role of the fossil fuel industry in capturing our political system of funding disinformation and denial, sowing doubt, blocking alternatives, you know, uh, and delaying action. All those are things that the fossil fuel industry, a very powerful, well-financed, well-connected industry have done to, to kind of run out the clock and that's how Ray says, you know, she probably would agree, well, we are all responsible for climate change, particularly those of us who live in the global north, middle class or affluent lifestyles have a disproportionate responsibility. We're the ones that have, you know, benefited from a century of extracting and burning coal, oil and gas. So she would say, yeah, we're all responsible. But toward the end of her life, she comes to this understanding like, well, actually, there are a couple dozen corporations and their leaders and their financial enablers who have brought us to this brink and have kind of foreclosed a lot of other doors. We, we haven't even become Europe. You know, Europe with a comparable standard of living has, uh, you know, way more efficient vehicles, efficient appliances, public buildings are more, in, uh, you know, energy efficient, and there's high gas taxes. Those are all things that the fossil fuel industry in the United States blocked 
so here we are. We're kind of up against the wall now. Our options are limited between a bad catastrophe and a worse catastrophe. Uh, that's, that's what's on the menu. And my fictional Ray Kelleher is taking that in and trying to understand what, what is a person's responsibility in this moment. And um, we should mention, speaking of Europe, the, uh, the decision recently by Germany to close all of its uh, nuclear plants. So that kind of uh, uh, echoes back to the, uh, to the work uh, that the, this book begins with uh, in 1977 uh, with the protests against the uh, nuclear plant in uh, Seabrook, New Hampshire. You're listening to A Public Affair, 608-256-2001 is the number to call if you'd like to join our program with a comment or question. Uh, Patty is out there at the phones waiting to take your calls, and we have uh, a caller on the line. Uh, Gil, go ahead with your question. Thanks, Norm. Um, I'm going up to uh, Superior, Wisconsin, tomorrow to take part in a flotilla of canoes protest against Enbridge's Line 5 that's uh, bringing down tar sands oil across the state. Uh, and uh, it's sponsored by Honor the Earth, a treaty rights organization based in Minnesota. I wonder if your guest, and I'm sorry, I haven't read the book. It's like I should. Um, what kind of impact do you think these kinds of protests here and there may have on the future that you're describing in your book? Great, great question, Gil. Um, and thank you for, you know, putting yourself out there, getting in the boat and, and being part of direct actions to discourage and stop new fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, I'm a I'm a native Michigan, you know, grew up, uh, you know, uh, in Michigan. So I'm very interested in what you all are doing to stop the expansion or renovation of Line Five. You know, uh, the the novel is an exploration of the various tactics that people are are considering right now. And 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 what's clear is our political system is completely incapable of responding to the crisis now. Uh, not just the ecological crisis, but pretty much all the challenges we face. Um, and that's not an accident. The fossil fuel industry has, has captured the energy regulatory apparatus. They rubber stamp projects. Um, so for people who are saying, well, how do I influence this? The, the sort of normal political channels are, are, are fewer. Um, and more and more of us need to take disruptive, nonviolent direct action. So people like yourself, you know, drawing attention, putting your, you know, being part of a flotilla, uh, people in Minnesota blocking the expansion of Line Three, the, uh, you know, fossil fuel pipelines. Um, these are all things that this novel kind of faces. I mean, it talks about Ray's, uh, you could call it, you know. Uh, kind of political assassination, uh, which is the most one of the more extreme responses. But she also looks at uh, the, the experience of, uh, you know, Norman Morrison, who was a Quaker pacifist who self-emulated himself in, in response to the Vietnam War. Uh, others who were engaged in sort of, uh, you know, putting their bodies directly into the fossil fuel infrastructure, trying to stop it. There's a group called the Valve Turners out there. And then there are people who are just, you know, climate defiance and extinction rebellion and other groups that are disrupting the status quo, saying, look, we, we, we just can't live with the same old denial and business as usual. So all those actions, bold actions, are absolutely what's required for us to, you know, get the rest of society to kind of wake up and, 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 and understand the existential threat that we're living with. 
Right. And in the book, you also have a couple of sections talking about Brian Wilson, the uh, Vietnam veteran peace activist who lost his legs blocking a train at the Concord Naval Weapons uh, Facility in California. Uh, Brian Wilson still today regarded as a hero by the Nicaraguan people because he was blocking the weapons that were being sent to the Contras who were killing people. Uh, uh, everyday uh, civilians in uh, in the country of Nicaragua in the 1980s. So those kind of of uh, heroes that are celebrated in this book for taking direct action uh, at great great personal risk. The the book is Alter to an Erupting Sun. It's a brand new novel by Chuck Collins. Chuck Collins is my guest. He's also a uh, senior fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, directs the program on inequality and the common good. And uh, Chuck also lives in uh, in Vermont and is very familiar with the uh, with the communities that are discussed in this book. Chuck, I want to talk a little bit about um, the uh, the community that's created by uh, the the protagonists in in your novel, because among other things, it focuses on green burial, and we have a uh, a green burial. Uh, community here in Madison as well, centered around the Farley Center. So talk talk a little bit about the creation of this um, uh, off-the-grid farm community in Vermont and how that kind of dovetails with the activism of all of its uh, members and participants. Well, I think that, um, you know, Ray and Reggie, the fictional couple, um, they call themselves kind of late in life back to the landers. They, they mostly are involved in living in Boston and activism there, but uh, there's part of them that understands that they, they want to be in a place to face this disrupted future, to grow food, to practice you know, mutual aid, to create a land-based community where people can gather. And yeah, one of the things, uh, Ray becomes you know, effectively a death doula, um, doing both hospice and sort of helping people prepare for dying. And that's very much informs her. And she, she would even sort of at different points say, look, we're really not going to be able to face the ecological future unless we understand our own mortality and we're less afraid of dying and we understand we're part of a great cycle. And so she herself uh, is part of this death and dying movement that's emerging in different parts of the country. People thinking about green burials, uh, the farm where they live, one of their kind of uh, missions and businesses is they have a memorial grove. So they have, you know, a couple hundred acres of forest land of which some part of it is people can do green burials in a forest setting, not a traditional cemetery, uh, without coffins, using willow, willow woven baskets and coffins uh, as a way to, <clears throat> you know, or just being buried with a shroud. So these are all things that are kind of depicted in the book, Alter to an Erupting Sun, along with kind of a new, um, a different culture around how we face our end. And uh, Ray herself, you know, makes a decision not to pursue extreme medical intervention at the end of her life because she wants to be, be kind of aware and slowly face her demise. These are all emergent in our culture now, uh, in, in a, and I think are good things and are kind of part of how our society is going to move past our sort of death phobia and silence around what, what happens when we come to the end of our lives. And I'll note that uh, in the Progressive Magazine, we've written about the Green Burial Movement before and also um, just recently had a piece about the whole sort of confluence between uh, preppers, which are usually... Um, uh, seen as kind of the right-wing uh, 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 fringe uh, movement to uh, prepare for uh, coming civil war, but the convergence between the prepper community and uh, more progressive community that's uh, centered around mutual aid and back to the land movement. So um, you know, very, very interesting topics that are very much, uh, I think, in in the conversation today. And speaking of conversation, if you'd like to join our conversation with Chuck Collins, author of Alter to an Erupting Sun, you can give us a call at 
256-2001, and we'll be glad to uh, take your call on the air. And Chuck will also be at A Room of One's Own Bookstore next Wednesday, August 9th at 6 p.m., so you can uh, have a chance to speak with him in person there as well. Um, Chuck, speaking of, of The Progressive, you regularly have written op-eds for us at The Progressive, and your most recent one is about the topic of taxing private jets. And let's talk about that because it's sort of one little piece of a much bigger conversation that we've been having here about the fossil fuel industry and about people um, uh, both profit, profiting off of and also taking advantage of the, uh, the world that fossil fuels have created for us. So talk, talk about that op-ed that you just wrote for us. Yeah, uh, to me, to me, private jets are kind of the symbol at the intersection of extreme wealth inequality that we're living through as a society and ecological disruption. Uh, private jets, we, we, we did a report at the Institute for Policy Studies, uh, you know, private jets, a passenger uses 10 to 20 times uh, the emissions as an ordinary air traveler. Uh, we as taxpayers subsidize private jets. And one of the things that's happened and it coming out of the pandemic, it's accelerated, is that the ultra rich are richer and they want to fly private jets. They don't want to be sitting next to you or I on the commercial flight. And so the demand for private jets, a huge carbon emitter, is accelerating. And uh, where I live in New England, there's there's one airport, Hanscom Field, that is a big private jet kind of airport for people who live in suburban Boston, they're currently proposing to expand four times their capacity uh, for private jet travel. They want to quadruple their, their and uh, you know, here we are at this, this moment where we should be rapidly decarbonizing the aviation sector and travel generally. And <laughs> The, the ultra rich are like, forget it. We're, we're going to just fly private. We're going to, you know, and some of these are like people flying less than an hour, you know, from suburban Boston to Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard or the Eastern end of Long Island. You know, they're, they're joyriding in a private jet burning up the atmosphere. So, yeah. So I, th I think it's a great issue for people to be engaged with and say, in the same way we say, look, no new fossil fuel infrastructure should be built. No new private jet infrastructure should be built. And we should tax heavily the fuel used by private jets. And uh, Senator Markey from Massachusetts just introduced a bill to almost increase by nine times the excise tax on private jet fuel and channel that money into uh, green transit, you know, uh, electric buses and high-speed rail and other other alternatives for everybody and not just private jets for the ultra-rich. And we should note that speaking of private jets for the ultra-rich, Donald Trump uh, just flew in a private jet to and from his uh, uh, arraignment in federal court on uh, charges of uh, uh, attempting to overthrow our democracy in uh 2021. Oh, we're speaking with uh, Chuck Collins, author of the book An Altar to an Erupting Sun, a brand new novel that looks at the issues of uh, climate, uh, the climate crisis and activism, uh, both over the past 50 years, really, uh, but leading up to um, uh, a very dramatic direct action incident that I want to talk about in just a second. But before we get to that, a uh, caller who wasn't able to stay on the line has a question and wants to ask about what do you think about people advocating for using nuclear power as a path to end our reliance on fossil fuels? And I'll say that I, I have some opinion on that. And we actually have two articles in the brand new issue of the Progressive Magazine just out that are addressing that specific question. But I think, Chuck, the question is addressed to you. Uh, what about nuclear power as, as, a, as an alternative to fossil fuels? Well, you could kind of understand how people have come to this conclusion because uh, at least the operation of a nuclear power doesn't, doesn't have any carbon emissions. But the, the process of extracting uranium and transporting it is, is highly energy intensive. And we still have not solved the waste problem. 
Uh, and in fact, if, if nuclear power is such a great idea, let them get their own private insurance to ensure their operations as opposed to depend on the government to ensure these risky operations. So, and, you know, nuclear power is not an answer. Um, if there's an operating nuclear power plant that's less than 40 years old and has a good safety record, maybe it should ride out its uh, projected life, but then quickly de be de decommissioned, you know. So as part of the short-term transition, you know, I wouldn't necessarily shut down all the plants tomorrow uh, if they're, you know, but others might just say, well, that's even still a risk to an unnecessary risk that we're undertaking. But it's not the answer. It is clearly not the answer. And the real answer is we need to power down. Uh, we need to reduce our, our energy use generally. We can't just sort of unplug fossil fuel and plug in other forms of electric. Uh, we're going to have to use less energy. And of course, we have things like the Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear plant in California that's sitting on a, uh, a one, or two or yeah. one or two different <laughs> fault lines. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, well, we're speaking with Chuck Collins. The book is Alter to an Erupting Sun. And um, you can join us by calling 608-256-2001. We have about uh, 10 minutes, a little bit less than 10 minutes left in our conversation. But I want to ask this question, Chuck. So the beginning of the book starts with this dramatic and violent direct action that's taken by Ray that results in, uh, in the killing of a, of a fossil fuel executive and two uh, two other people one is uh, one of his family members um in the book later on you talk about the fact that there are other copycat actions that result from this over this sort of seven year period that that makes up the last uh chapter of the book and um do you worry that in some ways this book which is certainly you know, very instructional about the history of nonviolent direct action might also be perceived as a manual uh, for um, more violent direct actions. Yeah, I think it's a, it, it's something that I've I've been concerned about. I mean, I think what the novel shows is that this is sort of a bad idea. It's a uh, it's both strategically wrong and morally wrong. It doesn't really. It has tremendous blowback. If there's any positive side, it is that it focuses laser attention on the role of the fossil fuel industry. Um, you know, so much of today's debate is distracted, you know, and uh, and even not even really facing it. And so, dramatic action uh, is part of that. And there are copycats. And by the way, you know, I mentioned Norman Morrison and. Um, his his act of of self-emulation setting himself on fire in opposition to the vietnam war uh after ray commits her uh act of murder and, and her her daughter basically says seven years later what ray did is wrong but people should think about what does bold action look like um and what really turns the corner it's sort of between the lines here are six grandmothers who are facing terminal illness, who call themselves the, the, the good ancestors, who set themselves on fire in the lobby of ExxonMobil. And of course, I'm not, I'm not advocating this. And I, and I think it's, um, you know, I don't want anybody who hears this to think that this is a good idea. But what that action is what actually captures people's attention, gets them to turn off Kim Kardashian or whatever they're distracted watching and say, what the heck? Why would they do this? Who are these? These are real people. And they have a powerful statement and it somehow breaks through the kind of cultural denial. And so I do think, in my own opinion, bold and dramatic actions will be required in the next, and I think we'll see uh, in the coming couple of years, an escalation of various different tactics, including, you know, your caller Gill getting in a boat and being part of a flotilla to draw attention to the dangers of a pipeline and uh, a whole range of disruptive direct action. So I think that's what we're heading toward. I don't see how we couldn't, given the moment that we're in. 
608-256-2001 is the number to call if you'd like to join our conversation today with Chuck Collins, uh, author of uh, numerous books, but the brand new one, uh, the novel Alter to an Erupting Sun, uh, also, uh, again, featured on uh, on this program over the years, uh, Robin Hood Was Right, um, and uh, The Wealth Hoarders, and uh, uh, maybe one other one that we've had you on a, to talk about as well. Uh, Chuck Collins is a uh, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies and uh, also uh, uh, runs the website uh, inequality.org. Uh, you can hear him speaking at A Room of One's Own Books on next Wednesday, August 9th at 6 p.m. Room of One's Own is located at 2717 Atwood Avenue here in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Chuck, one of the things that that really comes together in your your picture of the future uh, for me is this combination of mutual aid as a way of building an alternative society. And I think mutual aid is something that's that's really come come to the fore just in the last couple of years as people built mutual aid organizations to respond to the pandemic and mutual aid organizations uh, during the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020 after the killing of George Floyd. Mutual aid is something that we've really come to discover uh, in new ways in the last couple of years. And so I want to talk about that just for a few moments and also about uh, the pandemic as both as it affects the um, the people in your novel and also as it uh, has affected uh, kind of the general political atmosphere as we kind of come to deal with these issues of uh, of both threats to our democracy and the uh, climate crisis that's all around us right now. Yeah, this is a really important part of, of the story. Um, and actually, the fictional Ray Kelleher kind of gets involved in mutual aid groups starting in 2008 around sort of the economic meltdown and people losing their jobs and sort of that tremendous fear that rippled through the society. And she was part of sort of piloting these kind of resilient circles where people basically practice mutual aid and kind of recognize that a lot of people were out of practice. We don't know how to ask each other for help. We don't know how to sort of come out of our houses and be engaged in, in a community support so that's part of what is depicted in this book. And you, you mentioned uh, preppers, but, uh, you know, the, the Ray and her, her crew call themselves sort of communitarian preppers. Uh, no guns, no walls, welcoming newcomers, you know, practicing uh, hospitality as opposed to fear-based, you know, protectiveness, realizing that, you know, if you're just hoarding cans of food, that's not going to last long. But if you're growing and preserving food and you're exchanging with your neighbors and supporting one another, you're going to, you're going to be in better shape facing the future. So that, that their belief is mutual aid is, you know, not waiting for the federal government to act, not waiting for something else to happen, but directly engaging and supporting one another around food and health and entertainment and culture. And that's, that's another thing that's sort of depicted in this book is the importance of, you know, face-to-face -face human uh, culture and celebration. And that is part of how we're going to face the challenging times ahead as well. 608-256-2001 is the number. We have time for one last caller uh, very quickly. And uh, Brad actually wants to speak specifically about that uh, issue of entertainment and culture. And hello, Brad, you're on the air. Hey there. Uh, through Veterans for Peace, I've become very aware of the amount of pollution by the military, one of the biggest sources. And uh, I don't know, the last couple of months, it's really annoying to have all these air shows where they just go and fly around and entertain people while they pollute um, with military aircraft. Right. In fact, we just had uh, Wednesday of this week, the um, uh, F-35s did a flyover in uh, uh, in response to a, an event that was happening here in Madison that was a, uh, a athletic event. So um, uh, and, you know, the, your point about the military being the largest uh, uh, carbon emitter 
uh, in the United States and, and larger than many countries, I think, is, uh, is a very important one to address. Uh, Chuck? Well, I just think we, we probably need to find new forms of entertainment that don't require burning a lot of oil and, and uh, fuel, jet fuel. Uh, and I understand the thrill, you know, nothing like seeing the blue angels fly over, you know, but that's going to be part of the culture shift. We have to say uh, uh, maybe that bicycle brigade is going to be a better form of entertainment than than this uh, loud jet uh, entertainment experience. So, yeah, that's part of part of realizing the harms that are caused by the current practices and that we just can't continue business as usual. Uh, including how we entertain ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck Collins, we did get one other caller who couldn't stay on the line, but um, said that she feels that in some ways the repression that we're going through now and also the sense of inaction is kind of like a, uh, a flame to a gas leak and uh, wondering about kind of rethinking uh, how, we, how we view um, violence as a response to these, um, uh, both the pressure of repression and also the, the malaise of inaction, I think is what she's saying. Yeah. Well, that really is one of the conversations that people are having as they read this novel. Uh, there's a lot of groups that are involved in sort of climate direct action that are reading Alter to an Erupting Sun and talking about, uh, you know, not talking about violence or assassination, but talking about property destruction or bolder actions and what those might look like so so that's that's the conversation i hope to have and i hope people will come out next wednesday in person we can have that discussion um and i look forward to hearing from from people what they think as they read read the book great great well thank you thank you so much chuck collins for joining us and chuck collins will be speaking at a room of one's own bookstore next wednesday august 9th at 6 p.m uh, it's open to the public and he'll be also uh, presenting this brand new book alter to an erupting sun uh, a novel his first novel um, again uh, other books include the wealth hoarders and um, robin hood was right and born on third base where uh, where you tell uh, uh, some of your story, uh, which includes uh, being born here in Madison, Wisconsin. So Chuck Collins has been my guest, uh, again, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, uh, director of the program on inequality and the common good. And you can check out more of his writing at chuckcollinswrites.com on the web. And you can check out uh, uh the work that I do at uh, the Progressive Magazine, which is progressive.org, where you can see some of uh, Chuck's op-eds as well. Thank you so much for listening today. My name is Norman Stockwell. I've been your guest host here on A Public Affair.